Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 42. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we've got Bibles for you. Uh, they're, they're scattered, not scattered, they're kind of at the end of each row here at the middle, uh, all the way down. And you can just flag somebody down who's sitting near the middle, and they'd be happy to pass one to you. Uh, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love for you to have that one. Just take it home with you, and that would be our gift to you. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 42. Uh, those of you who are here today uh, visiting with us, uh, what you'll need to know to make some sense out of where we're going today is that we're in the middle of a series in Isaiah uh, where we're kind of dipping in and trying to understand the main themes of the book. And we're in a section of that series where we're trying to focus on what God has promised to do to meet Israel and ultimately to meet us in our sin. What we focused on the last few weeks has been the, 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 the sins that led Israel to, to national and individual brokenness, to a place of actually, where they actually lost their, their homeland, were shipped off in a judgment to, to live in the land of a foreign conqueror. Israel had lost everything that had once given them hope. But God has not allowed their sin to be the final word on his relationship with them. That's the gist of the promises that are in Isaiah. And in fact, what he's promised is that he's going to meet them, even in their brokenness, even in their exile, cast away from the land that had given them their identity. He's going to meet them there, and he's going to bring them back. And he's going to establish them once and for all. What we started seeing last week is that the way he's going to pull this off has a lot to do with who he's going to use to pull this off. Before we get to what God promises to do, in other words, we've been studying who God promises to use to save a people for himself. Last week's text, we, we, we looked at one of the most famous Christmas passages, an Advent passage, Isaiah 9, the one that Handel used for one of the, his most famous courses in Handel's Messiah, a one that promises a son who will be given to us, a child who will be born, and he will be a king who will reign on David's throne forever, and, his, and the increase of his government will never end, and justice will spread throughout the whole world, and that's, that's all that anyone will know. That's the promise of the king that we looked at last week. Now this week... This week, we look, or get our first taste of a second figure that Isaiah introduces. This one's much more mysterious. What we're going to see today is that it's actually a, another way of talking about the same exact person. But here, this figure is called the servant. Not the king, but the servant. Isaiah has a, a batch of passages in the second half of the book. The part of the book that, that looks ahead to when Israel will already have been judged. And they'll be coming back into the land and they won't have anything. And they'll be broken in their sin, sorry for it, wishing they could, they could, they could triumph over it. And they'll be, they'll be met in that condition by God and his promises to them. But they'll have to believe. They're in kind of in-between state where they have these great promises, but they aren't sure because of what they see around them that God can deliver on them. It's in this section of the book that this servant figure emerges. There's several what are called, they're called the servant songs. There's several of them. We're going to look at two of them, one today, one next week. The servant songs that are written to celebrate and to praise, to look ahead to this figure who's going to come, who's going to make redemption possible. Now, I'm going to set the stage a little bit more clearly before we get into it. For those of you who are, who are visiting with us today, I've already mentioned that, that Israel has gotten where they are because, like everyone else, they trusted in things that just couldn't deliver them. They made a decision not to trust in the promises of God, to trust instead in the powerful neighbors that lived around them or in the idols that they could make with their own hands, things they could see and touch and they thought things they could, tr- contr- could control. But these things couldn't deliver. They were empty. And so they were shipped off into this foreign land along with the idols they had trusted to preserve them. 
chapter 41, the chapter just before the one we're going to look at tonight, goes back to that theme again. Calls, it calls them to look on these idols and where they got you. They're empty. It says, behold, verse 24 of chapter 41, you are nothing. Those of you who trust in these idols, you are nothing, just like the idols are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. It's useless. Verse 29 says the same thing. Behold, look at this idol. They're a delusion. Their works are nothing. They've got nothing to offer you. They're just images. They're an empty wind. And then, in the first verse of chapter 42, same structure. Behold, look at, look at yourselves trusting idols. Look at these idols and how useless they are. And now, look at my servant, who will be marked not by empty wind, but by my spirit. He'll have my spirit in him. And this servant will be the one who will bring forth justice to the nations. It's in this helpless and useless state, a state that Israel deserved because they didn't trust in God, that God comes to them. Justice would demand that they get what they deserve, right? And, and, And are left there. Justice would see, if we were watching this as a movie, and we saw all that God had already done for Israel, how much he'd given to them, and then saw them refuse to believe in him and actually say that these things we make with our hands can do more for us than you have done for us. What would be welling up in us if this was a movie we were watching is we would want to see them exposed, right? We would want them to get what they deserve. We would sympathize with God who's been rejected by them, and we would want to see them exposed. That's because that's what justice requires. But the end of the story doesn't doesn't stop there. They do get what they deserve, and then God goes to them where they've gotten what they deserve and promises to restore them by his his mercy. And he's going to do it through the servant. In the text we're going to look at today, the point or the emphasis is on the servant's task, what he does, and on how he's going to do it. We're not really told, in other words, much about who he is. This is just one piece of a big unfolding mystery that the whole Bible exposes for us step by step that leads ultimately to Jesus. But right here, it doesn't tell us who he is. He wants us to focus on what he's going to do and on how he's going to do it. So that's where we're going to focus this morning. The servant's task and the servant's manner. If you found the passage, please stand with me now in honor of God's word as I read uh, from the first four verses of chapter 42. This is the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is God's word. You can be seated. The purpose of this figure, this mysterious servant, is stated over and over again in the passage. Maybe you noticed it. We can get straight, at, straight to it quickly. It's in the first verse. He is going to bring forth justice to the nations. It's in the third verse. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It's in the fourth verse. He won't grow faint or get discouraged until He's established justice in the earth. And even though we're not going to look closely at these verses, it's in the next several verses too. Uh, A section where God confirms his servant, speaks directly to him. He says, 
I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That description is basically a fleshing out of what justice will involve. It's the same kind of description we saw in our text in Isaiah 9 last week where, where justice language was used. This is what it was going to look like. Deliverance. Life as God intended it. That's what's coming. That's what the servant is going to bring. But the phrase itself on the surface may not carry a lot of meaning for us when we first read it. I feel like it's something we've got to... You almost have to know the whole story of the Bible to really understand what's packed into this promise that he's going to bring forth justice to the nations. It's a loaded phrase. It's a phrase like, all men are created equal and endowed with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We say things, we, we, we quote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness sometimes. It's in conversation or maybe even in sort of offhanded ways. And it's because it carries a certain connotation for us. It's packed with a story about where that language came from, how it came about, how it identifies us as a people. You'd almost have to know about the, the Declaration of Independence and about everything that went into the American Revolution and what we've become since then to really understand what we mean when we say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Same thing, same thing is true for this phrase, bring forth justice to the nations. I wish we had more time to go into the Bible story because I don't want to assume that you guys are familiar with it. But you can't understand this phrase without at least some of the building blocks of what has led to this point. Ultimately, the Bible is a big story. It starts in Genesis, goes to Revelation, telling one big tale of how God has created everything and made everything new all over again. The building blocks of the story that matter for you to connect, though, with what it means to bring forth justice to the nations, I think we can isolate just a couple of them that will help you with this. See, every, every body has an explanation for the world. Everybody has to address some of the biggest questions that are out there. Where do we come from? What are we here for? What's the purpose that wherever we've come from has left us with? What has gone wrong, if anything? Is the world supposed to be like this? Supposed to be full of, of sorrow, of abuse, of suffering? Is death normal? These are questions that everybody has to answer. They're questions that the Bible is meant to answer. And the Bible's answer to the question of whether or not things are supposed to be the way, the way they are is a clear no. This world is not what it was supposed to be. That the God who made this world hates injustice and oppression. He hates genocide. He hates that there are so many widows and orphans that are uncared for in the world. And he's going to do something about it. What the Bible tells us God has done about it is starts with a pilot project. A pilot project for the new world he promises he's going to bring about. He starts with this guy named Abraham, pulled out of nowhere, out of obscurity, with nothing to his name to make him worthy as a sort of a sort of sponsor for a new world. He just calls him. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you and your descendants a set of promises that are going to help to remake the world. What I'm going to do is make you guys, your nation, your people, a blessing to all the other nations. You are going to be a community that illustrates what it would look like if people didn't fail to trust God but actually trusted Him to provide for them. If, if people owned His law, this is what the world would be like. Israel was a kind of pilot project sort of like a, a model home in a, in a community that you could go into and look at as a taste of what's coming. The problem is that Israel fails over and over again. 
That's the main storyline of the Old Testament. God making promises to them, them failing to keep it. God making promises to them, them failing all over again. Through this process of failure and new promises, failure and new promises, the hopes of Israel become narrower and narrower. And they begin to focus on one individual person who, because the nation was not able to be faithful on uh, on the whole, the hope for that nation was going to rest on someone who would act for them. Someone who, like an Olympic athlete playing for his country, would represent them. That someone becomes tied to David, to the king, the greatest king in Israel's history, and to the promise God made to him that somebody from his line was going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. It's those promises that we looked at last week. Isaiah goes there in Isaiah 9. Somebody's coming who's going to sit on David's throne, and he will never get off of it. He will rule forever, and he will establish justice. And what, what this passage is doing, by going to that same language and promising that this one who's to come will bring forth justice to the nations, what, what this passage is doing is saying, this servant that I'm talking about, it's the same guy. This servant is the king. He will announce to the nations, just as Israel was meant to do, that this is the way. God would have us to live. And if we will trust in him, this is the world that we can enjoy. That's the role of the servant. I love the imagery of verse 4. This is not just about Israel. It never was just about Israel. It was about the world. The images of the coastlands, the the far-flung regions, the regions that these people had never even visited, are waiting for his law. They're wondering, is this kill or be killed world that we inhabit the way it was meant to be is the selfishness and power that is the only lasting currency is this really it is this our lot the servant will come to say no the bigger emphasis in the passage even more than the servant's task has to do with the manner in which the servant will accomplish his task. And that's where I want to really camp this morning. The rest of the verses describe how he will go about doing his work. You know, he just kind of says he's going to bring forth justice and leaves it at that. He leaves us to to, to bring in from the rest of Scripture what that means. Where he does get specific is in how this figure is going to go about establishing justice. And here's why that matters. If he had just told us that he was a king, if he had just told us he was a king, then... There are a lot of associations we could plug into that role. It wouldn't necessarily be clear what he had come to do and how. We know from, even from our experience and from what we've read about history that there are a lot of kinds of kings, a lot of different types of kings. There are puppet kings who are just sort of empty and just sort of played with by others who are more powerful. There are tyrannical, despots, Machiavellian kings who rule their people for their own gain to exploit them. There are... Kings who are just figureheads. I mean, who really takes the royal house of England seriously for anything more than tabloid purposes and ribbon cuttings? Maybe that's my American bias coming through, but come on. What, what, is, what, is, what is a king? So you told us he's a king. What's he going to be like? And the, the thing that's so surprising about this passage, especially is going to get more surprising when we look at the next servant song next week, is that the same guy who's a king is also going to be a servant. Now, now, that language means what you think it does. If you've seen Downton Abbey, you know what the servant's lifestyle is like, right? And you've all seen Downton Abbey, right? Uh, the servant's 
don't even associate, take that show for example, they don't even associate with these sort of lords who were born into their money but don't have any real power. Now imagine comparing that to a king who actually has power. And you can see how, how they would have not expected this king that they, were, they had described for them in, in the early chapters in Isaiah, now described as a servant. That would have, that would have been mind-blowing. They wouldn't have known what to do with it. It was, it was definitely a mystery to them. King and servant. I think the biggest payoff for describing him as a servant is to tell us the way in which he's going to go about becoming and reigning as king. I've got to go especially quickly this morning, but I want to tease out of verses 2 through 4 three characteristics of this servant, of his manner, the way he goes about bringing in his reign of justice that's surprising, that are surprising to us, but, but that are at the heart of why this king alone, out of all the kings in human history, is going to be suited to delivering what we need from him and why he's worth trusting, why it is a beautiful thing to trust in him. Obviously, we aren't seeing Jesus' name here, but every one of the gospel writers tells us that Jesus is this figure. Jesus himself takes this title to himself in in the gospel of Mark. We're talking about what it is that makes Jesus rule over us. Not difficult thing to take, but a liberating thing to take. Why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The servant is humble. The servant is gentle. And the servant is long-suffering. That's what we learn here. Three things about him that are also true of the king that's coming. He's humble. He's gentle. And he's long-suffering. The gist of the passage in verses comes in verses 3 and 4. The first surprising piece, though, is in verse 2. And we spend most of our time in verses 3 and 4, but verse 2 at least points us with a little hint toward what's so unexpected, so surprising about this servant and how he will go about his business. He's going to come humbly. That's what's meant by the, by the language that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. There's not going to be a big parade that will lead him into the center of the city with trumpets blowing and everyone looking and waving things and throwing things at, down at his feet. It's not going to look that way. He's not going to draw attention to himself, in other words. He's going to be humble. You get why that's so surprising, right? I mean, we know from history what the greatest of kings do to attract attention to themselves. Even if you haven't traveled to Egypt, chances are you've been to an exhibit of Egyptian artifacts in some museum or you've at least seen pictures of the pyramids. That's what kings do, right? When they have power, they build pyramids that will last thousands of years that will tell everyone how great they are. Or I remember, I remember when, when Lindsay and I took a trip to Paris a few years ago, how many things in that city are monuments in one way or another by word or, th- or through an actual monument to King Louis XIV? The, I think they call him the Sun King. Um, apparently, he's just like, he is like the king of kings in France's history, and he's everywhere. There's monuments to him in their buildings, on their street corners, in their street names, in their churches, in the art of their churches. He's everywhere. That's what, that's what powerful kings do, not this one. He will come not to be served, but to serve. He will come to give himself away, because he has no need to exploit. It's a hint, but it get developed later. The bigger and and even more comforting section for us, it comes in verse 3. The servant will not just be humble, he will be gentle in the way that he deals with us. The servant will be gentle. Here's the image. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I'm going to park here for a while. What I want to do is describe this image, make sure you understand what it's going for. And then I want to make sure you understand why Israel fits this image so well. The Israel that would have read this for the first time. And then I want to make sure that you understand how this image has life in it for us. How it speaks peace and grace and hope to us in the way that our Savior will deal with us. I want to do those three things. First, the image. Let's make sure you understand it quickly. The bruised reed he will not break. Think of a reed next to a body of water, like a cattail or something. You know, you, you know what a reed is. They look strong enough from the distance, but if you get up close to them or cut one open, you see that it's hollow. It's, it's not strong at all. But actually, a strong wind can come over and snap it, just bend it over, and it, and it, can't, it has no power to restore itself. Once it's bent, it's bent. A child could step on it and bend it. It's useless. And in fact, if it's going to stand up again, it's got to be tied to something that's strong. It's got to stand by the strength of something else, some stake that holds it up. Next image is a faintly burning wick. You know what this, what this refers to. You know when you first blow out a candle and you can still see that, that small speck of orange that's still left in the wick and there's all this smoke, right? There's more smoke than there is fire at that point. It's barely anything at all. It's there. There's fire in there, but barely anything at all. It's mostly smoke. That's the image. For that fire to stay alive, it requires a greater fire to be added to it. You've got to light a new match and stick it to there so that it loses itself in the, in the powerful fire that's added. That's the image. It, here's why it fits for Israel. Here's why it's such good news that the servant is gentle. The Israel that received this text, Isaiah is looking into the future. And the Israel that this text is meant for is an Israel that has come to realize just how awful their failure was. The fact that they trusted in idols and not in God has been exposed. They have been shipped off away from everything comfortable and familiar, away from everything that had given them identity as a people, and we're now, we're now at living at the whim of a powerful and hostile government. That's where this text finds them. And they knew, if they were honest, that they were at fault. They weren't just victims, in other words, of other people's abuses. They were guilty. They were bruised reeds. They were wicks barely holding on to any fire. So justice wasn't necessarily good news for them. The fact that this king, this servant, would come to bring forth justice meant that he was going to bring forth a world, a set of standards, a way of living that they had failed to attain. This justice, the same thing that is hope to those who are oppressed, would be death to those who had failed its standards. So is it good news that this servant is coming? That's the question they would have been asking. They were bruised and leaning and unable to rise. And their faith was weak. This whole section of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40 through the end of the book, it's written almost like a defense of God and his ability to deliver. Because it's written, imagining a people who would have been small, powerless, no army, no place to call their own, surrounded by powerful nations who ruled them at will. And they would have been asking, seriously? God is able to give us a kingdom and make us a pilot project for a brand new world that he's going to make? Can God really pull that off? Look how powerful the Babylonians are, the Persians, or whoever happened to be ruling him at the time. So they're asking, is God up to this? 
And even if God is powerful enough to get rid of these nations that are ruling over us, is he powerful enough to fulfill his promises to us in spite of the fact that we have sinned? That we have failed our end of the bargain? Those are the questions they would have asked. See, the way of nature tells us that the powerful, a a king and a servant like the one we've had described for us, that the way they get their power and establish it is to colonize the weak. The way that that the most powerful kingdoms in history have spread is they they have absorbed the nations that were around them that were too weak to resist. They couldn't do anything about it. Think of Hitler and his genetic plans to weed out of the population the weakest, those he identified as the weakest among them, to make the nation stronger by purging it. That's the way power consolidates. Think, even, even here's, here's a random example out of nature. I remember when Drew and Sharon had some chickens at one point, and one of them got hurt. I think I'm remembering this right. And, the, and if they showed their weakness, if I'm not getting this right, don't correct me, just let it go. <laughs> If they show their weakness, if their, if their wound was visible, the other chickens would turn on them. They would start picking, picking at them, like pecking them, clawing them, whatever. They see the weakness, they want to get rid of it. Because that's what the powerful do. Think about high school. Think about the power consolidated by the powers that be among middle school girls. When they can identify, or boys, when they can identify a weak one in their midst. Someone they can pick on. Someone they can define themselves against. Someone they can make an other. That's the way the powers of the world grow and expand, but not this power. The reason Israel needed to hear about this servant is that, is that this servant brings the promise that when he meets with weakness in his people, he doesn't root it out. He cultivates them. He restores them and heals them. He is strong for them because they aren't. And that's where his promise meets us this morning with the, with the best news of this passage. His kingdom, the kingdom of the king who is also a servant, is a kingdom for sinners as well as victims. It's a, king, it's a kingdom that belongs to all those who recognize their own poverty, their bondage, and their darkness and turn to him for healing. And this is a comfort to us because, and let, me, let, me, let me drive these images in in the few minutes I've got left, on two of the most common experiences that we have as Christians. Two of the most common struggles, I think, for all Christians are, are guilt over our sin and doubt about the promises of God. Those two things are true of all of us. You're not alone if you feel that. And these two images are tailor-made to speak to you with the hope that Jesus brings. I want to start with guilt and with the image of a bruised reed. One of the ironies of the Christian life, as, as the New Testament describes it to us, is that the more we grow as Christians... What it looks like to get holier is to see your sin more and hate it. Because as you come to, to reflect more like what God, what God is like, to love what he loves and hate what he hates, you start to see yourself more clearly than you did before. The sins that didn't used to bother you are now awful to you. And even though you're becoming more holy, you feel worse. So what is it that can give you the power to be honest about who you are? What can give us the courage not to shrink back from, from admitting openly what we struggle with, the truth about ourselves? What can give us the courage not to deflect blame for our problems onto others? What can, what can protect us, if we're honest about our failures, from despair, from the crushing guilt that can 
immobilize us and lead us to hate ourselves. That's not the goal. But how can we be honest about ourselves and not hate ourselves? Indeed, I I think when when we normally are confronted with someone in power, maybe it's a parent, a boss, someone in your field that you want to impress, someone like the king is described here in this passage, they're the last person that we want to open up about our weaknesses to. Of all people in our lives, the powerful are the ones that we want to impress. We want to put our best face forward. We want to win their favor. We want to perform for them so that they approve of us. So is this king who's to come to be one that we've got to hide from, to to keep and sustain his favor for us? The image of this text is that when Jesus meets us in our brokenness, he sees us for who we are, but he won't break us off. If you're honest with him about your sin, he doesn't see it and try to expose it like a pack of chickens converging on one that's broken down, but he takes you and holds you in his hands. He attaches himself and his perfect track record to yours and holds you up like a stake tied next to a reed. He won't bruise you, but will handle you with tenderness and care and affection because he loves you so much so that he was bruised for you. That's the promise of this image. One of my favorite books in Christian history is a book by a Puritan guy several hundred years ago named Richard Sibbs, and it was a book about this text called The Bruised Reed. It's a book of encouragement to those who were wondering whether they were even Christians because they could see their sin so clearly and who wondered if there was any hope for them. One of my favorite lines in it. This is, this is how this passage helps you admit your sin and not be beaten down and broken by it. Here's the promise. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. You can stare your sin in the face and admit it to whatever extent God gives you to see it. And you can do this without fear or defeat because there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Finally, I want to say something about doubt. Because I think the second part of this image speaks especially to those of us who struggle here. A faintly burning wick. Isn't that a great analogy for what it looks like to, to want to believe in God's promises, but to struggle, to doubt that they're actually true, to, to actually be so concerned, so weighed down by doubt or by sin that you can't even see if you have any real faith? Many of us struggle to know whether we're truly Christians because we see so much that isn't Christ-like in us because we struggle to see any strength in our conviction about the promises of the gospel. It's a great image for that. That's, that's immediately what we're supposed to see. And the promise in this image is that your doubt doesn't have to be debilitating for you. It doesn't have to isolate you from others. It doesn't have to steal your joy. Because this sovereign is not one who demands a test of loyalty that is like you might see in, even in America. You know how, how sometimes in our political life, for example... Things like wearing a flag pin have all this weight invested in them. If you, if you show any weakness in your patriotism, you're almost written off as, as un-American. And you could think that Jesus might treat you that way. If there's any doubt in me at all, I can't be honest about it because, because Christ and, and others in my life are going to tell me that I'm not a Christian because I struggle like this. That, that's not the way Jesus treats you at all. Jesus sees what even little faith you have. He sees it clearer than you do. Even if you can't see it because the smoke from this, from this fainting wick has overwhelmed any sign of a spark. Jesus sees that. And he is committing himself, according to this passage, to comfort you, to build up the faith that you don't have on your own, to add his fire to yours. 
That's the promise of this image. Your faith is not a reason. Your we- the weakness of your faith is not a reason to pull out, but it's a reason to go further in, to trust in him and fall on him, to have a faith for you that you don't have on your own. Jesus sees you and loves you, even if your faith is weak. The way that Christ is able to do this, I will not have time to get to today, but it was actually only meant as a pointer to next week. The way Christ is able to come as a conquering king who also treats us in a humble and gentle way is that he will be forced to suffer for us. He will take the bruising that our sins require. I think we're pointed to that in verse 4, which says that he will not grow faint or be discouraged. It's a promise that he's going to persevere. And in that is, an, is a hint or a pointer towards the fact that he's going to have a lot to hold on through. His life is not going to be easy. He is going to suffer. And if he's going to do the things he's promised to do for us, it will be because he has absorbed the pain, has taken it into himself and not been overthrown by it. It's a pointer to the song we'll consider next week, a song known as the song of the suffering servant who laid on himself the iniquities of all of us. It's in him that we hope, and in him alone. Father, thank you for coming to us in a form that is not harsh, that is not overbearing, that will not extinguish a faith that's weak, but a form that is humble and gentle, that is near to the brokenhearted, that that lifts up those who are cast down. This is not how we treat each other. It's not normal behavior. It is holy. We thank you that you are a holy God. Help us to trust in that. To see your promises and Jesus' commitment to cultivating us more clearly than we see our own weakness. More clearly than we see our sins. More clearly than we see what we doubt. Help us to trust that Jesus loves to stir up in those who trust in him a deeper faith. And give us freedom and life in those promises, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.